February 3rd, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Jonathan Pillow, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and the Center for Perceptual Systems at UT Austin. His lab uses a wide variety of experimental and theoretical tools to model the computational strategies neurons use to encode and process information about the visual environment. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um... We've talked in the past here in our podcast about how um, how our brains have been shaped by evolution to respond um, to the environment in probabilistic terms, um, to, to, to basically tune our, to the neuron that neurons tune themselves to, to statistically high frequency or salient features of the environment, and then compute those parameters to produce output based on some um, measure of cost or, or, or desirability. And it, your work kind of seems to lend itself to some of those ideas. Can you kind of introduce your work to us, maybe in the context of some of those ideas in a general way? Okay. Um, <clears throat> no, that, I mean, I, I think what you hit on is, is maybe, to my way of thinking, kind of the, the one of the few big ideas um, in the field of computational neuroscience, which is that to understand how the brain is optimized to do what it does. And um, my work actually doesn't touch on that directly as much as I would like. I mean, it's a direction that I would like to go in. My current work focuses mainly on building statistical and computational models of neurons in the visual system uh, that seeks to explain sort of how they do what they do to an input. So, for example, you um, you show a particular image to a um, to an animal, and you record from neurons in its brain, and you want to basically just build a model that describes how the neurons generate their responses, and um, in response to that image. And if you have a good description of that, you could um, you could then so predict what the brain would do in response to a novel image that it's never seen before. You could also look at that brain activity, look at those spikes that came out of those neurons, and infer what the stimulus was. So, so I guess. So far, I focus mainly on given a particular set of inputs to the to the nervous system. How does the brain process them, and how can we how can we read them in and read them out? Um, and of course, how the brain does that has been shaped by evolution. And I, and I think one of my long range goals is to understand better the ways in which what the brain does subserve computational goals of of, uh, of the system. So it seems like that that uh, one way to these these words of whether you say how. How the neurons respond, or uh, it's interesting because in some ways that seems like a lot of what you're doing is just trying to figure out what mm. <laughs> is the relationship, right? yeah. and some yeah. of the optimization questions are the questions mm. of why. Mm. Yeah. yeah, uh, why is that relationship the way that it is? Mm. That's a better way of saying it. And then, then you also have the questions of how, mm. in the sense of how that they do it in terms of uh, more mechanistic. Mm. Uh, explanations of what's going on in terms of that. And I was kind of wondering how much do you, do you, uh, cause we all want to know why and how, and it's kind of unsexy to like try to characterize what, <laughs> you know, to try to just say what is actually going on. Like let's just, let's just describe the data in a, let's figure out the structure in the data. And so I was wondering like, so how does that kind of play out in terms of, uh, you say you you'd like to go into maybe more some of the optimization kinds of things, and some, I don't know how. Do you have feelings in, in terms of how that relates or how that plays out? And, uh, let's see. I mean, I like the way you've broken this down. I mean, I, I completely agree. I don't really address why why is sort of these questions of how does the brain why is why is the brain the way it is. Um, if you want to get into how is, is really what you know distinct mechanisms are being used to to, to to carry these out, and I am I am more interested in what, 
And I think actually given where we're at in the field right now, that what is still very much an, uh, an open question, I think that um, – I guess to maybe to change slightly the language that we're using, I like to think of, of different levels of description for neural activity. And so some people focus on a very low level act, uh, of description where they want to describe individual ion channels or compartments in an extended dendritic tree. Um, that's sort of at one end of the continuum. At the other end are people who want to say, this brain area lights up when I do X or, you know, uh, that, that uh, they basically assume a very simple description of neural activity. It's, it's all rate coding, for example. The, the, the sort of history I come from, those people, people tend to think about the rate of a neuron is all you need to know. And so I'm somewhere in between those two extremes, and I want to build richer, more accurate descriptions of neural activity, um, but not that go so down to the level that they're making, uh, that they're at the level of mechanism. I guess a lot of the statistical questions I want to ask are not yet tractable at, at the mechanistic level. So I think, I think before you can really say, is the brain optimal, um, or how is it carried out? Uh, I think I think it's it's useful to know something about, um, you know, for large group collections of neurons, what is the what is the nature of, the, of their activity and how does it relate to the environment? How do we go towards why? Once we understand what that is, then we can start to an answer. I think is this an optimal representation? Um, Could you take a minute to talk about why what is so hard? Because mm, it sounds mm, like oh. what is the easy question, mm, right? Mm. I mean, uh, I. I if I mm. want to do it in a mechanism-free way, mm -hmm. if I don't have to worry about how the brain does mm. it, mm. then all I have to do is see what the brain does and change the environment, see what the brain does again, and I can compile a catalog of what. And, and the reason <coughs> that what sounds easy is mm. because it sounds like that would work. Uh, so I guess, first of all, I would say that won't work because... It, it won't work for allowing us to predict. It'll, it would allow us to make a catalog of what stimuli you've already shown and what responses there were. It won't allow you to build a predictive model that would allow you to say what the brain will do in response to some new environment or some new uh, some new stimulus condition. So, and I, and I guess I do want to say it's not that I'm, I'm going to say what without any regard to mechanism. I mean, I d you could just apply off-the-shelf machine learning techniques to model what brain activity looks like. And it, I, I think the models that I like to use do um, lend themselves to an interpretation at a low, lower level of description. Um, but it's hard because, you know, there are, there are, what, 100 billion neurons in the brain, and we can only record from sort of a small number of neurons, say tens to hundreds, to someday soon we'll be able to record from 1,000 neurons at once. But that's a very... How do you make sense out of it? It's easy to take one neuron and see what it does as I vary some stimulus. How do I take a thousand neurons and sort of make a, make a description of what they're doing in response to some, some complex stimulus? And, and so I think statistics has a lot to teach us about how to go about, go about doing that in a principled way. I, but, but I mean, I don't mean to suggest that it's not important to relate it, relate it to mechanism. I do. Uh, I do very much. Yeah, but since we're talking mm -hmm. about what, I mean, mm -hmm. I think there's a kind of danger mm -hmm. of, uh, of, Blurring the lines and letting your preconceptions about mechanism mm. influence your decision about how you're going to study the mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. question, describe the data. Yeah. In with. So, um, it, if we were to try to do it in an assumption-free way and just try to be as unbiased mm -hmm. as possible about how we represent mm -hmm. how the brain mm -hmm. does it, and and if the problem is there's too big a mm -hmm. catalog, basically the catalog mm -hmm. is just too large to yeah. make then what is the statistical uh, solution to that problem? I mean, what is the big idea that helps us to, to get past that, uh, just the problem of the dimensionality of the what? Question? I mean, the big idea from statistics is really sort of 
ways to extract structure from high-dimensional data. And so, I mean, this comes under the name regularization in some some uh, in some cases. I mean, we use what we've we've. I mean, there's there's a whole field of Bayesian statistics that I like a lot, where you you can basically use prior information, things that we know about neurons, um, to now have a very short experimental data set, which we can combine what we learn from our experiments with our prior information to uh, to extract a structured a model of what neurons are doing. Um, you hit on one thing there that I wanted to follow up on. Oh, I, I think I think for one metaphor, I would say is that it's not necessarily obvious that you need to know the full mechanism to know. What the, how the brain works. I guess if I want to think about what I want to understand is how we think or how how um, you know how we generate behavior from sensory inputs. It's not. It may be that you need to know an exact set of mechanisms, but it might be that there are many different mechanisms that would subserve or many. So, so let's just say many different ion channels could be used to carry out the same function. And so for me, one of the distinctions is between understanding biology of knowing exactly what you know what what biological proteins are floating around versus what algorithm I would want to use to, to, to perform a certain function. And there are many different mechanisms that I could use to implement that same, that same algorithm. And so I'm more interested in this sort of functional level of, of understanding how, um, how behavior arises, not necessarily knowing how it's implemented. The, so the point, it, the point okay. I was trying to make, okay. though, is actually very closely mm, related mm. to that. So it's often the case that people claiming to do, mm. um, to do descriptive work in an assumption-free way makes secret hidden oh. assumptions like neurons are rate machines. Mm, mm. And so then they say, well, we're not really making any assumptions about mm. how neurons work. So if I say, wait, your, your assumptions about how the neuron works are wrong. They say, oh, no, I'm not making any assumptions about how mm. the neuron works. Uh, neurons could work any old way they want, and everything I'm saying will still be true. Mm, but mm. It sometimes turns out that they are making some assumptions about how neurons work, and it does affect uh, what they're doing. So, uh, so... Uh, where how can we uh, how can we maneuver through that? Thank you for saying that. I want to I want to say up front. Um, I hate the term assumption free, and I actually never want to claim that I'm. I would never claim that what I do is assumption free. In fact, what I do is laden with assumptions. I want to be as explicit as possible about assumptions. And so, I, so I guess the way I would rather think about it is to say, let's try assuming that neurons are rate machines, say, and then we can ask, well, how well does that allow us to predict? behavior, or how well does that allow us to predict the responses? And so I, I guess I'd rather be as explicit as possible. There's no such thing, I would say, as an, as an assumption-free approach. You're always how you bin your data, or which pieces of the data you choose to look at, or what stimuli you show. There are always a lot of assumptions. And I think, I, I think for me, at least, the statistical approach says we should, we should write down as closely as we can what, what those assumptions are. And then now we can try to look at, if we vary those assumptions a little bit, how, how does that change how well we're able to explain the brain behavior. So, so my work in particular does start, you could think of it as starting from a rate coding model assumption. The, the models I talked about in my talk today um, begin with the idea that each stimulus causes a time-varying rate, uh, the neuron's rate to change. And so, but we know that that's an insufficient model of neural responses because we neuro, know neurons, no, neurons also have extra characteristics of their spikes. There are inner spike interval statistics, there's refractory periods, so after a neuron spikes, it's unlikely to spike right again, that aren't captured by a rate coding model. So, the, so I like to take the approach, therefore, well, let's see if we can build a model that's more flexible, that captures that. And if we do, does that bias anything in terms of functional description? Does it allow us to predict what stimuli we're shown to, can we, can we read out the stimulus from the neural response any better by incorporating that into our model? But So now I've got a model that's a little bit less assumption. It's a, it no longer imposes the, the assumption of rate coding, but it still makes many assumptions. And so I, I'm, I'm always in search of, are there ways we can make more flexible models that maybe make different kinds of assumptions that are better matched to the neural data um, that, that do better? 
But but I, I mean I, I completely agree with you that we should um, that, that we should make these assumptions explicit and and, um, and and not think that we're that we're somehow outside of. Um, so in that case, there's a kind of crossing the lines between what and how because uh, in in an attempt to make a a, a better model, you uh, end up asking yourself what what is a, a mechanistically more justified model of all the... It's true that zillions of different kinds of mechanisms could give rise to a nervous system, but ultimately some set of mechanisms did. And and uh, when it's sometimes said, I don't care about that. I'm a top-down person. I don't care about any of that stuff. A little bit further, Crowley finds out, oh, well, they... Actually, they're very knowledgeable about some of that stuff. Yeah, but that, but there's a good, there's a, it's a good example. I don't, I still don't think that necessarily what what uh, what Jonathan said is have anything to do with the how in a mechanistic way. So, is a refractory period is that a how or a what question? I think there's a question of what we mean by mechanism, uh-huh. right? But, so, is a refractory, I think the refractory period, period becomes a what? Everything eventually becomes a what? You no, just follow it down. No, this is a refractory period. <laughs> is a period of time that you don't see spikes. Uh-huh. Right, and so the, these neurons—they are—they they, they're a spike-producing machine. A refractory period actually comes from a black box things. It's a period of time where you don't see spikes. Now, where that refractory period comes from and what that is 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 Hodgson Huxley and why and 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 so that like doesn't that. become why Hodgson Huxley model is just another what. It doesn't explain. The, the opening and closing of channels, or why there's right. such a thing as inactivity. So that's, a, well, that's so then a, eventually that's a, you end up with a, asking what questions about the molecule. Everything eventually becomes what. No, no, but follow the, it down. no, but this is a Hodgkin-Oxley is a great example, right? Because it was very much a, a what kind of model, but then people looked and found a very, uh, you know, a very nice correspondence, at least to a surprising degree with things about that you might say how in terms of structures of ion channels and openings and closing and numbers of subunits and things like that wasn't exact, but that was not at the level of analysis going back to that distinction in the model really at all. So you know, you have a really clear notion of where the boundary is. No, I don't think so. So like if it becomes a molecule, it is a how, but if it is a supramolecular, then it is a what? Is that... I, I'm just trying to reinterpret what you said. No, so so some of it is is a is a question. So I think it's some of it's a low levels of analysis. Um, but so if you if you only consider spikes, right? That's the only that that's the only measurable quantity that you get from neurons. Do you care about the duration of the spike or the amplitude or just the time of the spike? Uh, well, you could you could care about more. You could care about more of that. Most people don't, right? Well, but I, I think spikes. that's a great way to frame it, though. From a statistical standpoint, then we could say, let's try a model where we allow spikes to have different amplitudes and different widths. Say, um, does that allow us to predict neural behavior better? I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying that that. What I'm considering, I'm considering these as different black boxes, different spikes with different amplitudes. I'm not saying, well, which currents did you use to get those different width spike widths and things? And, well, I don't know where I'm going with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's, that's what you do, right? So the, then there's a separate, it's not completely separable, but then you start to look at the question of uh, other kinds of data, other levels of analysis that you might think is more mechanistic to explain that next mm. level thing. Is there a good match between things that you find in some statistical description with a mechanistic thing that you understand, and do they match up? 
mm. uh, in terms of, and that's in some sense bridging levels of analysis and what the high, when your your how models match your your what models, then that's that's a good thing. But there is a, I think you go back to what the the original tendencies and where do you start? Yeah. Like what do you start? In terms of putting in your model, mm-hmm. of what what model you do, I would I would say that in terms of when you say, oh, you want a description of the of the catalog, right? Anytime you say that there's a description, you want a simplified thing that you're almost implicitly making a model. So that some of the questions become where that where that model comes from. <laughs> Fidel Santabria just walked in for the record. <laughs> All right. So some of the, the questions come thank you, from thank you. yeah. But, but, okay, so that brings up so uh, let me let me um it brings up something that I think is uh, is very relevant to this. Eve Martyr came to UT Austin and gave a very nice talk about six months ago, and she described some work that had been conducted in her lab where they looked at different neurons in the same population, and they were trying to find out they were trying to look at specifically which ionic uh, currents were present in those neurons. And what she found was that you could get different neurons with the same functional behaviors, meaning that their their sort of input-output properties were the same, but they had very different ratios of these different currents. And so her conclusion was that if you... Well, at least what I took away from this, I think this would be her conclusion as well, was that if you wanted to understand the function of these neurons, you might be able to do that at a level of analysis that was higher than we must understand every current. So so trying to understand every current um, would lead you to a, a sort of... Uh, so too, too fine detailed a, a, a view. Every channel. Every, every channel, sorry. Um, trying to understand every channel would, would, in fact, obscure your ability to understand the neuron's overall function. And so, so, fact, so you have some to. Some people are yeah. working at a level that's actually detrimental to understanding the brain. Well, I, would, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, it's still important to work out what, sort of, deal for what is the space. I mean, she, she showed that, in fact, if you, if you did a dimensionality reduction on these different channels, you could show that they, there were, I don't know, six channels. It wasn't six degrees of freedom. There were two degrees of freedom in that space that you needed to, to express the same, to, to arrive at the same functional behavior. But that it wasn't necessary. If all you did was measure from one neuron and you found that this is the combination of these two channels that you need, you would have, you would have, arrived at the wrong answer, which is that you would have thought that this is the mechanism that's necessary to, to get that functional behavior. And instead, she was able to show that you can get the same functional behavior through different, through different mechanisms. So, so what I would say then is if you're interested in the functional behavior, what, how, would, how would I build an approximation to that in silicon, say? I don't need to know necessarily every channel. I might have some, some higher level description. When you build a gratifying model that's reliable and everything works mm. out perfectly, do you move on to the next problem? or you? I'll let you know if we ever do that. To claim that um, you don't need to know all those details is because you're reducing mm. uh, the sample that the preparation is seeing, right? The... the, the the sample of the universe mm. that the sample is seeing, right? And then to say, well, we don't need all these channels, sure, mm. right? I mean, we can build You're a robot. That those correlations will break down to some circumstance, right? I mean, but how do you know they will? I mean, if Eve says that when you you get when you see this configuration of channels and that configuration of channels, the currents are exactly the same, and if the currents are exactly the same, the cell's behavior is exactly the same, and so that means that those two constellations of channel expression were functionally identical. That's, and the idea is that you have this big space of, ch- of channels, but you have these really strong correlations that reduce the dimension of that space. Just like you have this big space of neurons, but you have these really strong correlations that reduce that space. 
Now, I would say then, on the same level, we should not be thinking about single neurons. We shouldn't, because now we're going to get interested in how this neuron is different from the other, but it isn't really. It's, it's really, if this neuron fires high and this one low, or this one low and this one high, those two things mean the same thing, and so therefore it's a difference that doesn't make a difference, but, and we shouldn't be interested in it. Well, it certainly matters for pathological states or for modeling perturbations in the system. Now. Um... I don't know, right? I mean, uh, uh, pathological stages are usually ma uh, modeled by uh, box diagrams these days, right? <laughs> they were still modeling with box diagrams. Or genes. Or genes. And uh, we yeah. just liquefy huge sections of the brain. Right, but 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 the fact that you're not saying, given that you have huge chunk, right? About <laughs> 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 the liquefaction of brain, um, the the extreme time constants that we see in these channels, from time constants of a couple of hundreds of microseconds to hundreds of milliseconds, right? And then you're sampling them with step currents, and then claim that then you don't need a, that. That that variability is not is not important. Sure, it's not important for step currents, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, if you make the analogy uh, on vision, right, in terms of the frequencies that you see in the natural world, it depends where you are, right? If you're in the desert or in the ocean, uh, you might see very uh, low frequencies, right? But if you're in the jungle, the the, the amount of stimuli that you're going to get is different, right? The power mm. of the signal is going to be different, and the spectrum. And maybe the channels, those channels that were, if you start do, do your study in the Sahara, right, you, want, you might say, well, these combination of ion channels are useless, right? But in, if you repeat the experiment in Brazil, right, you might say, well, these actually are coding for something else. So, it, I mean... It, so that's a statistical question of how how you how well have you tested your well, model? Well, it's more mechanistic. I, mean, if I don't only, think it's statistical. If you've only tested it with step currents, as as you say, I mean, Charlie said, if you if for every possible input it gives the same the same output, then then you can say these are functionally equivalent, and we don't need to know the differences between them. But I mean that that's that that needs to be carried out. I mean, I don't I doubt that anyone has shown all possible currents to these to these neurons, and and so so I mean, I think it's an empirical question as to whether. Can I wonder we if we can do the space of natural, with the massive, natural signals. Uh, uh, wholesale uh, patch clamp uh, robots that uh, Axon Instruments is selling. I mean, they're being used to screen for um, drugs and on ion channels, but I wonder if you could mm. uh, express uh, these ion channels in these small cells and then uh, do like. Uh, um, Current clamp experiments so or experiment dynamic current clamps. patterns onto neurons? Mm -hmm. So you like have a retina, instead of shining light on the retina, you just like... A dynamic current clamps. And what, what do you get from that? What's that get yet? Well, you can start looking at different combinations of ion channels because you can program that in the cells. Um, and then... You say, well, um, this is this is the probability distribution of combination of ion channels, and then this is the probability distribution of inputs that these channels might receive if we want to mimic a retina, right? A cell from the retina, based on the distribution. I mean, and you can do this now. Uh, I mean, there are people doing this huge data mining operations, like this uh, full paper in Science a week ago on culture comics, right? Yep. Culture comics or culture comics. 
For example, 5% of all the books ever published, right? And then you can see these all these correlations. You can do the same thing on all the images published on the on the web, hmm. right? And try to now determine the statistics, the distribution of color pixels in in nature, right? And then you can and who really not, people have right. collected billions of pictures already, right? Yeah, so but that's a tiny, tiny fraction. I mean, yeah. I think well, sometimes well, people do kid themselves uh, into thinking that's a lot on of images. Screen is way tinier, right? Sure, <laughs> I mean, or, or a step so, current. Yeah. <laughs> sure, but. Uh, yeah. But I think you're, you're, you know, that whole thing is, you know, just subject to the ancient curse, right? Mm-hmm. You just now get, so yeah, you can describe the correlation. So you get five percent. Describe why well, we can get the second order structure of some of these images, right? Yeah. Big deal. That's not that great, you know. Yeah, there, there's correlations. There's interesting statistical structure. We're not going to describe the whole functional. Uh, thing, even if you get gazillion things, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if you got, you, you can have Axon Instruments build a whole bunch of none of mm-hmm. robots as they want. It's like I'll have a, the whole I'll have a monkey like typing things and, yeah. and wait for a great thing. We need right? to use our creative intelligence to get to the truth by a shorter method. Yeah, that's what we right. That's that's what models are for. Models are tools for the mind to find the truth by a short method. Uh, at least that's what I was you, you have a gift for aphorism. That's those are, those are, I, I couldn't put it any better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have so you have to, and I think the the real I think the real interesting questions come a lot from this question of which kinds of assumptions do you put in, and how do you compare the models, and how it's very in in and the approach of building a model with these assumptions. And then building and adding another one and taking the difference between the models to, to get some sense about how important that assumption was in the context of what you had the model do is really is really is really important, right? Is really a, a nice way to do things. And you could start with the models as statistical models, and you could start with the models based on putting some mechanism in that you that you think and abstracting it away enough mm-hmm. that you can put it in, and you might get different answers. And and the answers that are different, that's the interesting. Right, because mm. it's the different way that you thought about the mechanism, or the different way you thought about where that functionality comes from, and it gives you the holes of what is yet to be kind of explained. Yeah, I, I like that. I like what you said there, and and I would also add that, I mean, so to, to some degree, the kinds of models you build are informed by what kind of data you have available. So, all of the work I talked about today, we only had spike trains. So we actually, even if we thought there were different spike heights or spike amplitudes, all we knew is when the spike times occurred. And so if you wanted to go about modeling that with Hodgkin-Huxley-style models, I think that's a fool's errand. You would, you're, you're, you'd never, that space of models does not relate nicely to the space of spike trains. If we have intracellular data, though, then it starts, and, and so I'm very interested, actually, so I have a new collaboration with Nicholas Preby at, at UT Austin, and he does intracellular recordings in visual cortex uh, in vivo, and so trying to look at, you know, more mechanistic. So I, I am interested in the, in the sort of connections between different levels of description, um, which I, I think we, I think we all are, but I, I guess I didn't want it to come across that I was saying we should stick with spike times, and that once we've understand the spiking code of the brain, we're done. I, I think even if, if certain physiological, ma- uh, biophysical mechanisms map onto the same function, that's still that's still worth knowing and knowing what that space is, and and how that space might be constrained by evolution. I guess would be. Um, the fundamental problem for experimentalists is that we are all working on what? That's why I was mm. like, trying mm. to point out that mm. even if you're a molecular guy, you're working mm. on some what question. And there's a there's this huge, 
huge space of experiments you can do. It is <laughs> practically unlimited space of experiments you could do. An experimentalist view is fine. I'll just keep doing that. <laughs> but the idea that we will get to the to the to how the brain works by that method is wrong. We won't get there. I mean, we might get there in, in an infinitely long time. I mean, I'm not even sure about that. So infinite from our perspective, our tiny lives are the tiny amount of time that people as a species can expect to live. We won't, I don't think that it's, that there's a chance in the world that just doing experiments and collecting catalogs of facts at all these different levels can ever give us a satisfying explanation to any of the questions that we're asking. We need uh, a, a, a definite procedure for making a model that will give us uh, so everybody's model building is is an art, and we argue about it. We've been sort of uh, kind of walking around the question: of How do you how, how do you make the decisions you have to make to make a model? And the people who make the right decisions are rewarded with the truth, and the people who make the wrong decisions aren't. And so the question is: How do we how do we make the right decisions in making? But so Can I ask you guys that question? Is that not fair? <laughs> so one, uh, you know, one way to 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 characterize what some of uh, Jonathan has done is like, well, let's make a model and see how right it is. And so, and you look how the model is not right, and you look at at what else, what doesn't it do, and that informs you to build the next model. So it's not like you think about how I'm going to build the right one, and it, and you're going to build it, and it's going to be the right one, right? So, in some sense, the right one is one that, that doesn't work when it's wrong. And the wrong one is one that does work when it's wrong. But um, didn't this competition organized by ETH a couple of years ago mm. to see mm. which model will fit best data based on inter slice experiments and then tested on in vivo recordings, the best one was like a modified integrated fire. Yeah, it was a spike response model with yeah. adaptation. With adaptation. Yeah, right. yeah. So Is that that's correct? The, that's the kind of thing that. <laughs> but it was. I mean, it was. It was somatic. Them. It was yeah. somatic current. In, I mean, you're right. So, so, I think Wolfram Gerstner. I mean, sort of saw that as a vindication of these more simplified, fun, you know, phenomenological or functional models over multi-compartment, uh, multi-compartment Hodgkin-Huxley style models. I mean, the, the limitation, of course, is that the, the data were... I mean, I think there were two data sets. One data set did have current injection in a distal dendrite and ethosoma, and the hope was that, you know, that, that kind of... But that's still a long ways from, you know, synaptic activity arriving across some, some uh, dendritic tree that may have nonlinear dendrites. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's still an open question as to whether... I, I, what, I, what I liked about that is it did push... I think it pushed it in a statistical direction of, of the idea of cross-validation, which is something that... That sort of I learned about from from the statistics and machine learning side of things that maybe in biology isn't as well known. Um, I've had submitted papers before and they come back with the criticism that well this this model that you used has more parameters than the other one, so of course it would do better. And so this idea that if you use more parameters, you can always describe your data better. That is true for the the training data that you use to fit your model. If you add parameters, I can always do a better job of fitting that training set. So if you think of a, a set of points, I could use one number for each point in that, and that's a perfect description of my data set. Um, but the, the idea of cross-validation is that you use your model and then use it to predict some novel condition that hasn't been previously shown. And there, actually, if you add more parameters to your model, you'll actually get worse. And so um, so I think that where we're at, I mean, when you think about building up a, a, you know, a, a many-compartment model, it's, it's, 
I think those models have not been tested or, or um, I, I don't think they've been formulated to predict as much as they, so far, this is my impression, I, I should say, I'm not an expert in that area, as much as they have been to, um, to fit a data set that's already been, uh, been and some, some, many people are working on this, but I think that's a good direction forward would be to, to emphasize the, the predictive power of a model should be, should be its test, not, not how well does it fit the training. The training data. I think there's a worry. I mean, what I was sort of trying to say earlier is that there's a worry that you make a model that you know is wrong that fits everything, mm. all of the data that you've got in hand really well. Mm. And that's when you're in really deep trouble. Mm. And so I think, you know, if an integrated fire neuron turns out to be the best one given the tests that we're doing, then that means we're really in trouble because we know neurons are not like that. So well, have to, I don't absolutely. think it could happen, could it? I mean, integrated fire is known to fail in certain so, the escape. The, that's, yeah. that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because because there's the. I remember Jim Bauer who loves to talk about these kinds of topics. Um, yeah, once I was asking a student in a in a some kind of an exam, like qualifying qualifying uh, exam or something. <laughs> uh, what ought to be the properties of a good model? And the student was listing all the things that ought to. You know, it ought to match the training set, and that it ought to have the minimum number of components necessary to account for everything that you're trying to account mm. for, and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, it was clear that Jim wasn't getting the answer he wanted, and he kept asking and kept asking, and finally the whole thing broke down. And sometimes happens, and the student just says, "I just don't think I'm going to give you the answer you're looking for." What What is it that you could possibly more want from a model? And Jim said, "It has to be right." <laughs> it has to be what's really happening. It has to match with that underlying, mm. you know, material that lies at the next level down and the next level down. And that it has to basically it, it has to match the implementation. So that uh, that's like the difference between Copernican and Ptolemaic model of the solar system, which is another favorite example of Jim, James, uh, which both match the movement of the planets equally well, but one of them was right and one of them was wrong and and basically it boiled down to the next level down. Hmm. Boiled down to stuff that the models weren't designed to address. See I don't think we'll ever get a model that's right. I mean in physics that works. But Which one I, is right in physics? What's that? Depends on the level okay, of the you, question. You might argue whether it's right in right. physics. There's there's one? The one? Yes, you might argue whether it's... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're applied to a certain set of hypotheses, right? Yeah. Uh, there's the hope that, you know, quantum field theory has been tested down to, you know, as, as, as fine as we can measure, and it still still holds up. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I, I think of... I, had, I have a friend who does um, fluids, studies, a mathematician who studies fluids, and, and he said that he, he's gotten very discouraged by the, the sort of field of fluids because we, we, know the, we know the relevant physics. We know... Roughly, you know, we know the Navier-Stokes equation, we know, um, but we're not going to get any insight into, he said, we're as far away from modeling how this water in this glass is moving around as we are from modeling the entire ocean. Um, because until you describe every single molecule and how it interacts with every other one, you won't get a description of, the, of, of what exactly this glass does. And my, I was thinking that I hope the brain isn't that way, that we don't need the true model. We don't need the model that describes every every channel opening and closing to get, to get at what the brain does. If we think of what the, this, this glass of water isn't computing anything useful. It hasn't been shaped by evolution to map certain inputs to certain outputs. And so I think for me, the hope is not to get the true model, but to get one that captures enough of what, I mean, I don't think we'll ever get a model that's, that's so I think, though, that, for every. I think we're in much better shape than yes. worrying about, because there's no I, internal, I, the problem with your cup of coffee 
that you are shaking, saying that the, the molecules in here are just as bad as the ones in the ocean, is that there's no intermediate structure. Mm, mm. It goes from molecule to a whole cup of coffee. Mm, mm. But the brain isn't like that. There's like structure at every single level. So if what we need is to step one level at a time to mm, understand mm. the structures at every level to relate them to each other, we're actually in great shape for that because mm. every 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 level we look at, we see structure. And the argument just becomes, which structures at my mm. level do mm. I need to relate to okay. the ones at your level? I mean, it sounded to me like you were saying Jim wanted just the base level applied to the whole brain. Um, no, I think what he wanted okay. was, I, of course, I speak for Jim, it's always an a, a implicitly dangerous thing to do. He does that for all of I think... Just talking about this one model, you know, what mm. is, what is, what do we mean when we say that we have a good model? And, it, and of course, the, there's an obvious list, but one of them ought to be that it's, um, it's assumptions about implementation, which it cannot fail to have, mm. turn out to be correct at the next level down when we start talking about how the model is implemented. So a great model would actually provide us with insights about the implementation issues and allow us to discover the correct implementation at the next level down faster and better mm. than we would have. So the Hodgkin-Huxley model was, was super in that regard. Mm. It completely predicted what mm. the molecular biologists ought to be looking for and what they ought to be looking at. But the problem, the problem goes back to, uh, to um, if you have hints of what you want to see down at the next level down, then you put all those in so that it works and explains those yeah, things. Yeah, that's cheating. Well, but that's what everybody... We, we all cheat to get yeah. anything done, yeah. right? And so we should of, not do that any more than we had to. Right. Well, so that, that, that's some of the things that, that's nice about uh, trying explicitly not to cheat. Try not yeah. to be right mm-hmm. and find out where you're wrong or what the important functional differences really are. Like, is this a big difference, or is it like, well, yeah, maybe there's another equivalent mechanism, and that's not too hard to imagine, or is it like fundamentally, you know, this does not match up with what we know, and if you're always trying to get rid of the fundamental differences from the beginning, which people do, they shade that all the way, mm-hmm. then then it is dishonest, then you don't really know why, what's really in the model that you describe as being something, and then it's actually because of all these kind of hidden hidden assumptions. And so it's it's kind of nice to, to make a pure, a, a, a cleaner model at one level analysis first, and then see those properties and try to describe them, and then worry about matching up at different different levels. I mean, that's one, one thing to do. It's not the only thing to do, Well, thanks, Jonathan Pillow, for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Okay, okay. Great. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, thank you. That was really fun. It's tricky to choose your words when you're thinking that it's not just, you know,